welcome on this cold Sunday morning. Delighted you've joined us at Christ the King. If you happen to be with us, I don't know if anybody's here for the first time. If you happen to be here for the first time, you've come right at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1, to chapter 31, verse 13. And in the end, it happened just as Samuel had said in the beginning. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Verses 12 and following, let me read you parts of that from what Samuel had to say in Gilgal. You said to me, Samuel told the people, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Later, he says, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And here it is. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And then to verse six, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. It was just as Samuel had said in the beginning, and then, too, like bookends on this long, tragic narrative of Saul's kingship, it was just as Samuel had said near the end, at Endor, on the night before the events of 1 Samuel 31. You remember from a few weeks ago when the dead and buried Samuel spoke. 
to a terrified Saul. In chapter 28, verses 17 to 19, listen to this end of it. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, Samuel declared. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Welcome to the end of 1 Samuel. and the end of Saul. He was the Lord's anointed, brothers and sisters. And 1 Samuel 31 causes us to imagine for a moment what might have been. Because you might remember there were glimpses of possibilities before those earlier words of Samuel at Gilgal. If you can remember back far enough in the study of 1 Samuel that we've been in, back as far as chapter 9, verse 16, when God's purpose for Saul was explicitly stated that Saul would save his people from the Philistines. He wouldn't do that. Yet once Saul had been, at one time Saul had been equipped for that task by the Spirit of the Lord that had changed Saul into a new man, the language of chapter 10, verses 6 and 9 and 10 had said. Saul had even demonstrated his spirit-empowered ability to deliver the people in 1 Samuel 11. Do you remember that incident? It comes into play in this chapter. Nahash the Ammonite in chapter 11 had besieged Jabesh-Gilead. The message came to Saul, who, if you remember, had been with the oxen in Gibeah. And then according to verse 6 of chapter 11, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. His anger was greatly kindled. The fear of the Lord fell on the people. They rallied to Saul. They said to the messengers, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow you shall have salvation. And then 1 Samuel 11, verse 11, And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites into the heart of the day. Today, Saul said in verse 13 of chapter 11, Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He had done that. He had used Saul, his anointed king, to do that. So then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Do you remember this? It's the Lord's kingdom Samuel wanted them to renew. This was their chance because the people had asked for a king when the Lord their God was their king. The only way it would all work is if the people and their king lived in covenant obedience to the real king, to the Lord. The Lord of hosts, remember Hannah's prayer. 
the Lord of hosts, Psalm 24, verse 10. He is the king of glory. It was and always had been the Lord, the most high who was to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47, verse 2. covered a lot of ground in the book of 1 Samuel. And there's more in these final two chapters this morning than I am going to uh, take time to cover. But I'm taking the time instead of covering all the detail in these chapters to frame the end of the book in this way because I hope we don't finish the book of 1 Samuel without this being clear in our minds and in our hearts because we'd be missing something close to the core of the message of the whole Bible if we don't see that the death of Saul and the defeat of the people in 1 Samuel chapter 31 has as its cause one thing. They did not fear the Lord. They did not obey the true king over all the earth. They did not serve him. They did not obey his voice. They were not faithful. I don't say perfect. We'll come to David in just a moment. <laughs> they were not faithful. And now the end of Saul's long rebellion had come to fruition. At the beginning, it was, we're reminded in this passage, at the beginning it was faithfulness to his calling that inspired Saul to fight fearlessly against the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. But in the end, if you've been with us through this lengthy run in 1 Samuel, you understand it was persistence in disobedience that led finally to Saul's burial back at Jabesh Gilead. I find the way 1 Samuel ends to be moving. I, it, feels, <laughs> it feels in those last few verses like at least something was right in this whole mess. I mean, it's almost as though we're reminded of what might have been possible. The inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead had never forgotten how Saul began as king. The spirit may have departed from him. Yahweh may not answer him. But time was when Saul was their savior and they remained grateful. So we read in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 31, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shen and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so ends the account of Saul with this moving act of gratitude from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and a reminder of an earlier day. But as moving as it is, of course, it can't undo what happened in Gilboa. It can't undo 
the life that led to that end. We knew we'd be here. Samuel's words had prepared us for it. The king who had failed is dead now by his own hand, as it turns out. Defeat is all around for Israel at the end of 1 Samuel 31. Saul's relics, not only is his head cut off, his armor paraded through the Philistine temples of their gods. Messengers are carrying literally the good news to the people of Philistia that they had triumphed. They fastened Saul's and his son's bodies to the wall of Bethshan. Territorially, the Philistines seem to have conquered. They now control the coastal plain in the south and the Jezreel Valley in the north. They therefore, that means, also had gained control of the most important trade route that ran through Israel from Egypt through the Valley of Jezreel where this battle had been fought. Then on to Damascus, Aleppo, Babylon. In other words, Kingship seems to have failed when we come to the very end of 1 Samuel. Israel is severely weakened, not only militarily, also economically. There is no hopefulness that I see in the text of the final chapter of 1 Samuel. Which is why, though I generally don't like to do this, I decided to end the sermon series in 1 Samuel by reading and preaching on both chapters 30 and 31. Because <laughs> 30 is about David, 31 is about Saul. And if you've been with us in our study, you know that Yahweh has another anointed one. We've been watching him in recent weeks, and in many ways we've not been very impressed, have we? Beginning in chapter 27, fearing for his life, David had spent the last year and a half with the very Philistines who were engaging in the battle we read about in chapter 31 with the people of Israel. And then we saw last week how in chapter 29, even as David had been caught in the trap of his own duplicity, seemed to be leading him to have to join the Philistines in a battle against his own people. There seemed to be no way out for this other anointed one either. We then watch as the Lord providentially delivers David from the Philistines in chapter 29. And last week we considered how that was only the gracious divine providence that rescued David by the hand of the very Philistine commanders themselves who refused to permit him to go with them into battle. Yes, the Lord delivered David, not because David deserved that, but only by the grace of God. And you see the way the end of 1 Samuel works is this. There's actually a double ending. Because I think we're meant to see that the events in chapters 30 and in chapters 31, at least to the end of chapter 30 and then chapter 31, the events of these chapters are happening at the same time. Or at least really close to the same time. Look carefully again at how chapter 31 begins. The wording is well translated, I think, in the ESV. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That is, at the same time as Saul and his army are being drawn into battle at Mount Gilboa in the north by the Philistine forces, 
David and his men are fighting against the Amalekites in the south. The, the very people that Saul had failed to destroy at a pivotal point. The two leaders of Israel are engaged in two battles with two very different outcomes. And I've considered chapter 31 and the ending of that already with you at least somewhat. Now I want to go back and look a bit at chapter 30. Remember where we were. It wouldn't be difficult to envision the frame of mind here of David's men on their homeward journey. They'd just been delivered providentially from the Philistines in chapter 29. They had to be looking forward to arriving at home, eating a meal, putting the frustrations and the anxieties of the previous weeks behind them. And their expectations are shattered. As we, we as readers know once more, more than David does at this point, because the narrator tells us in verse 1, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. The text tells us that the Amalekites hadn't killed any of them, but David and his men couldn't have known that. So their reaction isn't surprising. Verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Their homes are burned to the ground. Their families had disappeared. And in frustration, David's men become angry at David. Because it had, after all, been David who brought them to Ziklag. It had been David who designed the strategy of duplicity in raiding the surrounding territories when he was there, including that of the Amalekites. And so we read in verse 6 where things are at at this juncture for David. It says David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And it's at that exact point, I think, that we have to pause. We need to see what David will do. Because the language there in verse 6 seems intentional to me. You remember what Saul said in Endor 2 Samuel, chapter 28, verse 15. Saul says, I am in great distress, he cries. Great distress. Here we are. David was greatly distressed. This, I'm suggesting to you, this is David's great and unexpected trial. Overwhelmed with grief, his men about to turn against him, things had gotten worse right when it seemed that the Lord had acted to deliver him. Maybe one commentator has it right when he says, we are again reminded that God is at work in all the twists and turns of the daily lives of his people. David had placed his trust in his own cleverness. Now he had come face to face with the end result of his self-defeating self-reliance. So what will he do? How would he respond? Can you relate to this moment in David's life at all? 
I mean, perhaps you have not experienced anything quite as terrible as what David now faced. I hope you have not. But in some way, have you been here before? The Lord has done something amazing in your life. You've been rescued, maybe even from your own sin, given a new start. And then something tests that. Which way will your heart go, dear friend, when you face the next challenge, when you find yourself overwhelmed yet again? It's not that that always is what happens. Sometimes the Lord spares us from such affliction, but sometimes he doesn't. And so here's the test. What happens when the bottom falls out? Right when it seems like it shouldn't. Right? I mean, shouldn't the end of Samuel, 1 Samuel go this way? David's sent back from the Philistines. He happily returns to Ziklag while Saul marches to his death in Gilboa. I mean, it's a nice, clean ending of the book. Goes each way. David goes this way. Saul goes this way. It's not what happens. Because it's at this point that we meet with this incredibly important statement, I'm arguing, in verse 6. Because here, I think, is the contrast with Saul that is the final point at the end of 1 Samuel. And we might read it quickly, and maybe you think I'm making too much of it. But the end of verse 6, I think, tells us everything we need to know about David at this point, doesn't it? Verse 6b. But... David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Is that not a relief to read? After the last few chapters of dealing with David? Again, one commentator has it right, I think, when he writes this. David's turning to the Lord in this time of great distress marks the first time in the whole series of Ziklag episodes, which began in verse 27, you recall, the first time that David is portrayed as seeking the Lord's help. David's relationship with the Lord had suffered during this period because David had chosen to go his own way. But now David suddenly realized that the Lord was speaking to him through the adversity in which he found himself. Can you see how different this is from where David had been since the beginning of chapter 27? The very first verse of chapter 27, which I made a big deal about when we looked at that chapter, when David was deciding to go to Achish, the king of Gath, and you remember the verse that led him there, 27 verse 1, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And I argued that was in direct opposition to the promises that David had received. Contrast that with the movement of David's heart that we witness now in chapter 30, verse 6. But, the narrator says, despite the circumstances now surrounding him, when all seem to be lost, he's about to be stoned. Then, nevertheless, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Brothers and sisters, that's a key moment at the end of 1 Samuel. And as your pastor, let me say that this is more or less how I pray, that your heart and my heart, that this is how we're learning to respond in the face of the trials or the struggles that the Lord himself allows in our lives for his purposes. 
And I just note two things here in reflecting on this most critical verse of 1 Samuel 30. First, notice the language at the end of the verse, because what's the starting point here in responding as David did in this instance? Did you notice this? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now that's a small thing, I know, the little word his. But I suggest to you it's critical. And I might even suggest that I'm not, I, we, so I sort of feel like Saul wouldn't have said that. This isn't the way Saul ever seemed to be. Is, is, is this how you speak to the Lord yourself? Is it, Lord, you're the shepherd of your people? Or is it, Lord, you are my shepherd? Do you find yourself using language like this, as in Galatians 2, verse 20? The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When other things are taken away, what remains for you? When you are in great distress, are you like Saul or are you like David? For David, though we've been sort of over some rocky ground with him, in the end, it was his God. It has to be that. It has to be where faith-filled strengthening begins with a personal God. But then secondly, may I suggest how it is that you strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. And I know here that our passage doesn't say very much. But when I read this verse in chapter 30, it brought to mind a similar statement, similar language back in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel in verse 16 of that chapter, where if you recall this episode, it was Jonathan... We'll talk more about Jonathan next week, but it was Jonathan who at considerable risk had went and found David and the text says strengthened his hand in God. You remember that. And what did that strengthening entail? Chapter 23, verse 17. And Jonathan said to David, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. To strengthen David, Jonathan reaffirmed, emphasized the promises of the Lord to him. The word of the Lord, the promise of the kingdom. I suggest to you that David strengthening himself in Yahweh, his God, means he recalled the Lord's promise. And how despite everything that had happened, not just his foolishness with Achish and Gath, but even what had just happened when it seemed like it shouldn't have. The Lord had in fact not allowed that word to fall to the ground. And I submit to you that that's how faith works in times of testing. In our times of challenge. It's in how our hearts respond that we learn where our faith really rests. That we must strengthen ourselves by calling to mind the promises of the Lord for us. So I ran across what was a new verse to me this week and thinking about this, kind of looking for other verses that spoke to this theme. This is probably not new to you, but I got it out of the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. Not sure when the last time was that you read Nahum, but listen to this verse. It's just one verse I'm going to read. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. 
The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Do you hear that? What amazing verse. I'd spend a while just stewing in that one. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Where does your heart turn in trouble, dear friends? Is it to your God? Or is it somewhere else? The answer says everything about us. The answer says everything about David and everything about Saul. It was the promise of God's word, the affirmation of God's character that keeps David steady at this time. What a contrast to what David had been saying in his heart back in chapter 27. It was this dark day in David's life that becomes the occasion on which he is enabled, I'm reading it, to turn again to the Lord, to seek strength, to go forward in dependence, in dependence on him. And it would be from that low point of distress and David's response to that, that we then see a string of actions by David in the rest of chapter 30 that I don't have time to talk about that demonstrate the reality of the trust that he'd recovered in the Lord. In short, my argument is in chapter 30, there's a change. And the time is gone, so I'll just list them for you, how in chapter 30 we see this change in David. We see what it looks like when the king fears the Lord and serves him faithfully with all his heart as Samuel had commanded the king to do. It's there in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 30 when David again now seeks guidance from the Lord. How immediately he requests Abiathar to bring the ephod to, in order to inquire of the Lord. We've talked about that before. How wonderful then that the Lord is ready and willing to help David. It's there in verses 11 to 15 in David's treatment, several verses devoted to this, in how David treats this Egyptian slave of an Amalekite raider who was in need and the slave is suffering from illness and starvation and he was abandoned by his master because he'd become sick. And the way the narrator portrays it, David and his men care for him, not evidently because of what he could offer, but simply because he was a person in need. It's only afterwards in the way the narration goes that the man provides David with information about the Amalekites. It's there in verses 16 to 19 when the Lord gives David and his men a decisive victory over the Amalekites, the very thing Saul did not do. Not only were David and his men enabled to launch a surprise attack, they were able to recover everything, the text says, that had been taken from Ziklag. And David gets it all just right in verse 23 when he says, it was all what the Lord had given us. For he has preserved us, given into our hand the band that came against us. David's there. It's there in verses 20 to 25. 
when we see the way in which David divides the spoil that he'd taken from the Amalekites and he provides for a just distribution of the recovered possessions, while some of his men had argued that dividing the spoil into equal parts would be wrong. And notice what David says, you shall not do that, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us. He has given into our hand the band that came against us. And finally, I think it's there in verses 26 to 30, when David, as the future king, identifies himself with God's people once again. We're from the plunder now that's even greater than the loss from Ziklag. David sends gifts to the elders of Judah. Very unlike what he was doing in chapters 27 and 29. What's the point of it all? Well, at the end of 1 Samuel, it is to show what Samuel said to Saul near the end, that the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and given it to David. It is to show us that Saul's failure was not the failure of God's purpose, that the Lord had provided another whom he would establish as king over Israel despite his failures. We have a long way to go in 2 Samuel, but you already know how in due course, of course, David would also fail. And of course, David would also die. It would only be the death of David's greater son that would establish this kingdom forever. And so I'll close just by reading a brief part of the great sermon at Pentecost that the Apostle Peter preaches. Do you remember this? Brothers, he says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, Verse 29, I'm in in Acts 2. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. A little preview of where we're going in 2 Samuel. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.